Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. Salesman to the Last Literary Salon Written by John Somerys Smith This was written and published in the Book Collector Summer Issue for 2009. The subject, not easily divined from the title, concerns the reps or travellers, as distinct from the runners, all great characters, who would sell new books to Hayward Hill. The reader is Neil Pearson, the actor and bookseller. Salesman to the Last Literary Salon Book Trade Lives was set up as part of National Life Stories, the British Oral History Archive, in the late 1990s. Since then, there have been occasional references to the project in the trade press, but it didn't impinge on many of my own close acquaintances. This is reflected in the fact that the three leading independent bookshops in London, John Sando, Daunt and Haywood Hill, hardly rate a mention in Sue Bradley's book based on the archive, The British Book Trade and Oral History. But she couldn't have interviewed everyone and had to be selective. Can we hope that the interviewing process might be continued? Reading her book gave me considerable pleasure. Many names were familiar to me, and it acted as a sharp spur to my memory. Both the voices and the anecdotes create an atmosphere of informal conversation. I often felt that I could have added my own Thrupneyworth. In this response, there may well be a more than normal use of the first personal pronoun. The editor would sensibly have started her interviews with those who remembered the trade before the Second World War. Like Frank Stokely, who ran the science department at Heffers of Cambridge. Mr Stokely was my first boss when I had just left school and had been encouraged to spend three months in a bookshop, not in a publisher's office. The advice had come from Sir John Murray, John Murray V, already in his 80s, but still presiding on the first floor of 50 Albemarle Street. You'll learn much more on a shop floor, he had said, but you won't be generously paid. I suppose you haven't got relations in Cambridge with whom you could stay. Within bicycling distance, I could point to grandparents, a great aunt, two single aunts, and my uncle, then senior tutor of Kings, and his wife, enough to keep me going from January to Easter. Mr Stokely knew that I was starting from scratch. He must have trained a multitude of young men in his time, and one of his sons, to his delight, was then at St Catherine's reading science. I'd been a little surprised that I'd been placed in his department. Much later on, Mr Heffer explained to me that this had been quite deliberate, as he knew I'd read the stock anywhere else. I was given the option of moving to another department after three weeks, but chose to stay on the grounds that I was just beginning to see the wood for the trees and didn't want to start again elsewhere. I was rewarded with a pay rise from £7.10 shillings to £8 a week. What I chiefly remember about the work was the willing service in the shop, undermined by the incredibly slow deliveries from the publishers' warehouses. It would have been common form for us to tell undergraduates that the book they wanted wouldn't come in for two or three weeks, by which time I imagined they'd have moved on to a different essay subject. What I learned was more fundamental. 
the names of all the leading publishers, the various methods of ordering, what to expect on the other side of the counter. This helped me three years later when I was interviewed for a more permanent job by Sir Victor Gollantz, who had campaigned with my grandfather for the Peace Pledge Union, by Mervyn Horder at Duckworth, who had been a paying guest in Delhi with my parents in 1943, by a couple of personnel managers at Longman's who were recruiting for a post overseas, and by Handerside Buchanan at Haywood Hill. Handy is fondly remembered, a real gentleman, by Ian Keek, who was the excellent traveller for Hutchinson. This led on, in Mr Keek's interview for Book Trade Lives, to his memories of Haywood Hill, the last literary salon in London, and how its customers differed from those at Harrods. Haywood Hill's regulars were mostly men, Harrods were women. In publishing terms, Hamish Hamilton's books did well in Curzon Street, Michael Joseph's in Knightsbridge. When, a year or two after Handy had retired, Mr Keek had a real bestseller to recommend, Robert Lace's Majesty, he was dismayed that I, this nice young man, only ordered twelve copies. Simply wasn't our sort of book. Of all the radical changes that have overtaken the book trade, the disappearance of the reliable publisher's rep, or traveller, is one that I particularly regret. They were, in the West End area, at the top of their career tree, and independent booksellers very much relied on their professional judgment. They saw me at least once a month. They carried finished copies of their books in stout leather briefcases, and they knew what their different customers were likely to reject out of hand. Haywood Hill's interests never extended to the rugby field or the world of ballet, and we were limited in our knowledge of sci-fi or popular science, despite my grounding at Heffers. They acted as a human bridge to the sales managers and even to those Olympian figures beyond, such as Sir William Collins or Jock Murray, who were said to be interested in our reactions. When we gave them an order, there was an inevitable element of risk if we were sticking out our necks. They promised to cover our returns if they were necessary. One of Sue Bradley's bookseller interviewees, Margaret Hughes from Grasmere, was asked about this human aspect and said, I appreciate a person saying, I wouldn't bother with this book. Or when the rep comes next month, you say... You said we should have this, but we haven't sold a single copy. Oh, don't worry, send it back. It's old-fashioned, I know, but I prefer to have a human being to complain to or congratulate. Haywood Hill was popular with travellers because we didn't keep them waiting and we were relatively decisive. This was, of course, much easier because we had a finished copy in our hands. We could see the print the quality of the illustrations, the physical size and weight, and the price, which could be a nasty surprise. £3.10 for Kenneth Rose's excellent biography of Lord Curzon, four guineas for a library reprint of Harold Acton's Last Medici, or the first hardback novel that, shock horror, broke the £2 barrier. We were also happy to back our own judgment. We had such a chance in 1977 with Oswald Wynne's The Ginger Tree. Wynne had had crime novels published previously by Collins under the pseudonym of Gavin Black. 
When this was submitted, it bypassed the Crime Club label as it was clearly autobiographical and was read by the chairman, Sir William Collins. This would have been a marvellous coup if, a week later, Sir William hadn't died, leaving the ginger tree without an enthusiastic patron. It was hardly mentioned by reviewers, and after six months was set for a speedy remainder. It then appeared in America, and was admired by one of our close bookselling friends in New York, the Madison Avenue Bookshop. They recommended it to one of my friends who read it during his return journey to London. He called me when he reached home, and, taking his advice, I read it almost as quickly. Once I'd finished it, I sent our first copy to someone who turned out to have known Oswald Wind during their shared childhood in Japan. She, the late Margaret Rawlings, whose name as an actress had been up in lights during the thirties, was riveted. She ordered several copies to give us presents and sent a fan letter to Mr. Wind. When the Collins rep next appeared, we told him that Ginger Tree was selling like hotcakes. Ah, he said, that explains why Hatchards, then owned by Collins, have been asking me about it. We might even save it from the remainder market. An executive decision had already been taken not to publish it in paperback, so, a few years later, when Anthony Cheatham, then in command at Century, asked whether I could recommend a novel worth putting into paperback, Ginger Tree was my suggestion. As it was being reprinted for the second time, Anthony cheerfully complained that he couldn't see how this could be happening. It was a one-off novel, by an unknown name, with an unfamiliar background, and yet without any publicity on his part, people were buying it. I simply told him to read it himself. Such a verdict is echoed in The British Book Trade by Vic Jones, Bodley Head's rep for many years. One of his colleagues once called him a great salesman. He firmly declined the label. It was a question of knowing what to read and who to recommend it to, to telling the truth. The travellers all met at a great dinner once a year in the Connaught Rooms near Covent Garden. Only now have I learned that a large number of them were Masons, and on the one occasion I was invited, I felt distinctly honoured. My host was Mr. Caspel of Barry and Jenkins, I never knew his Christian name, who had been very pleased with the success we'd had in selling David Thompson's delightful 1974 memoir, Woodbrook. He gave a memorable sigh when he looked at the table plan, as we'd been placed next to a group of Cassell reps from the Midlands, and he rightly guessed that they wouldn't have much to share in West End gossip. If many of my old traveller friends are unsung, Trevor Moore is the exception. He did well for an exceptional number of imprints. Hutchinson from 1958 to 1960, Hamish Hamilton to 1964, Jonathan Cape to 1969, then Collins, Deutsch and Hodder and Staunton. In 1985, he became sales manager for Transworld's new hardback imprint, Bantam Press, subsequently representing Century Hutchinson, later Random House, up to his retirement in 2002. Without this structure, his contributions to Sue Bradley's history wouldn't make much sense, but wherever he was working, he was keenly observant and remembered many people's voices and attitudes. 
After Haywood Hill's retirement in 1965 from the shop he had founded, Handy clearly thought that Trevor, much younger than most of his contemporaries on the road, was a bit uppity. But he managed to hold his ground, and with the cape list to sell in that exciting period, he could hardly be ignored. It's hard to think of a bookshop nowadays as a regular meeting place, let alone a salon. The travellers contributed a lot to this aspect, and many of them became firm friends. When they retired, one always hoped that we'd managed to keep up with each other, but that rarely happened. As I found to my regret, a bookshop provides a rewarding way of life, but when you leave, your parting is final. That was Neil Pearson reading Salesman to the Last Literary Salon, written by John Somery-Smith and published by The Book Collector in our summer issue for 2009. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or via our website. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.